for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. But more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. It's been a while. Yes. Hello, Stuart. This is uh, this is the Curbsiders, and uh, I believe Paul is with us as well. I sure am. How's it going, guys? <laughs> Hi. You sound like Kermit the Frog today. <laughs> it's not Wait, just today. Me or Paul? Oh, Paul does. I was like, oh, oh yeah. yeah. That's kind of my thing. <laughs> Paul, how about you tell the audience, uh, maybe we have some new listeners. Why don't you tell them what we do here on this show? Well, new listeners, welcome to the show. This is an internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, we also tend to mess around for about the first 10 minutes of the show talking about work-life balance, um, my cats, and other things. So if you if you wish to skip past that point, um, although WTF style, that is fine, though you'll be a worse off for it. Excellent. Stuart, anything that you wanted to bring up before we got into uh, the, the guest bio here? Absolutely. So it's it's been a while since we've mentioned any listener feedback, and uh, this one this re- this one really touched our hearts. So this one says, <laughs> "Sorry, this one says, uh, I love the way you approach medicine. Somehow you remind me not to take my profession too concerned and more relaxed. I listen to your podcast on my way to work in the morning, and when I'm on my bike in the afternoon on my way to the city center of Dusseldorf, you make me laugh so often. I don't know what people around me are thinking when they see me laughing on my bike, Patricia." Well, Patricia, lucky for you, we're here to help. Hey, Paul, what are they thinking when they see her laughing on her bike? I am I'm not going to presume to imagine what's in the mind of the people of Dusseldorf. I'm sorry. I, I'm not going to commit to that. <laughs> yeah, let's let's just set up the show, Stuart, because we uh, we had a lot of great stuff here with Dr. Right. Dollywall. That's right. So once again, we have Dr. Dollywall back on the show by popular demand. In our last episode, we briefly touched on how to train your brain, but as oftentimes occurs, we delved into a tangential topic about the importance of and how to teach clinical reasoning. If you're interested in that topic, and we sure are, please take a listen to episode number 90, uh, Clinical Reasoning. I've got to say it here. Um, My favorite quote from that episode, and one which seemingly sums the entire episode up, is... uh, Everyone here is smart. You distinguish yourself by being kind. Nevertheless, this episode, this one, the one today, will focus on training your brain. As Dr. Dollywell puts it, professional musicians, athletes, chess masters, and others perform for maybe one to two hours per week and spend the rest of of their time training. If you are like all the rest of us in the medical field, performing all the time and spending little, if any, time training, then boy, are you in luck. We have Dr. Dollywell with us tonight to help us learn to train our brains. That's right. And in case you missed his bio last time, Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal, MD, is a professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He studies how doctors think, how they diagnose, how they make treatment decisions, and how they develop expertise. Considered as one of the most skillful diagnosticians and clinical educators in the U.S. today, Dr. Dhaliwal sees patients and teaches medical students and residents in the emergency department, inpatient wards, an outpatient clinic at the San Francisco VA Medical Center. We are thrilled to have him back on the show, and I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. That's right. So let's go on talking about training because I know squat. <laughs> did I miss a pun there, Paul? <laughs> I don't get well, it. Well, because 
if you were exercising, say, then you might be doing squats. <laughs> and so it requires, requires a little bit of work on the listener's part. <laughs> that's a long, that's what they call a long walk in the comedy world. <laughs> <laughs> For a short slide. <laughs> well, here we are back with Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal. Thank you so much for, for joining us again. Happy to be back, guys. Yeah. Apparently, we didn't scare him away. That's great. <laughs> and as we told you, your first episode was very popular with the audience, and uh, I, I'm really excited for this one. But for, for people that didn't hear your first episode, how about you give them a one-liner just to remind them a little bit about yourself? I'm a 44-year-old general internist. I uh, practice at the San Francisco VA, and I'm a faculty member at UCSF. Um, I am a full-time clinician educator, so I spend all of my time in clinical practice, and I spend uh, half of my time in the emergency room, half of my time as a hospitalist. I precept a little bit in uh, clinic, um, and I'm really interested in sort of how docs think, uh, but then what we're going to talk about today, I hope, is how docs get better at thinking. And then the other uh, things I tend to do on the side, I have two boys. Uh, they are um, 10 and 13. Those are confirmed <laughs> since the last <laughs> podcast. Uh, and, um, I I do engage in a little bit of one-on-one basketball with them on weekends. This is, this is gold. I'm sensing a common thread here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was so nervous. You know, I was so nervous about their ages since the last podcast that I forgot my own. (laughs) 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 The worst. (laughs) Yeah. Well, once you get to, you know, once you get above 30, I feel like you should just stop counting your age. I totally agree. Yeah. It's immaterial. (laughs) You know, since we've already kind of done our usual questions with you, I think we can just ask, did you have any pick of the week, anything that you wanted to recommend to the audience? And then we'll, I'll let my co-hosts give their picks of the week if they have anything. Yeah, I I, um, I was thinking about this because I think last time we did books and I've loved the books that people have been suggesting on the podcast. But um, to the extent that we're, um, we were talking about last time, we're going to talk about, again, sort of achieving your personal best. I think there's a movie that I love. Um, and my kids even got it for me a while back. It was long enough ago that it was on DVD, but it's still relevant. They got me this uh, movie called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Um, and <laughs> it, it is about an amazing sushi chef, arguably one of the best in the world, if not the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's beautifully produced. The music and narration is amazing. But the greatest thing about it is just watching someone who loves his craft so much that he's dedicated himself to um, getting better and better and has no notion that he's achieved perfection. He just is on the path to trying to find it. Um, And it's really, it's both serene and inspiring. And, you know, it's the mindset I I would hope all of us could have for our craft as being doctors. Yeah, it is. a great choice because most movies, usually if you are obsessive about your job and your work, that possesses an inherent character flaw. (laughs) <laughs> that gets in the way yeah, of right. relationships in life. So it's actually nice to, to see it framed in a different kind of context. Well, a lot of that's cultural as well. Um, so the, the Japanese culture really kind of instills that that idea that you want to be the best at your craft. His mindset is, is it very devotional. Yeah. Have you seen it? I have, yes. It was on Netflix oh, yeah. for a while. I'm not sure if it's still available on Netflix, but it was. I think it might be on Amazon Prime. I'm not sure, though. Paul, if anyone listen, and any listeners want it, I have a DVD. You can just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm to ship the DVD if anyone has a DVD player left. <laughs> no, nah, I don't think anyone does. I think we gave up on those. Paul, do you have any questions? Or picks of the week, rather? <laughs> Many questions. I do have a pick of the week, too. <laughs> I question your pick of the week. So I'm going to actually recommend a podcast. Uh, it's this podcast called Unspooled. 
And it's hosted by Paul Shear of How Did This Get Made fame uh, and movie critic Amy Nicholson. And what they're doing is they're actually going through all the movies and the AFI's top 100 movies of all time. So each week is dedicated to one movie. So rather than reviewing bad movies, they actually watch a movie that this uh, the American Film Institute says that everyone should have seen. And, and just sort of talk about it for an hour. And I don't know if you ever heard How Did This Get Made. It's a really funny show. I like it a lot. But to actually hear Paul Shear talk with genuine passion and interest and be serious about movies that he likes is actually it's fantastic so if you're mm. if you're a fan of movies i'm actually following along and watching the movies they recommended week by week so i got to see uh what was it called swing time which is a, a fred astaire and ginger rogers movie um the french connection was just on last week so it was a chance to kind of even build my my movie back while even further so if, if you like the movies it's a great podcast it's called unspooled I'm, Excellent. I'm going to check that out, Paul. You are you are my number one podcast uh, recommender, and usually usually I like them, so I will check that out. They are categorically non medical, always. <laughs> yes. Excellent. Hopefully the movie the movies are too. Um, yeah. So my pick of the week is is something I've been wanting to say only because I've got five kids with lots of holes in the wall. It's called Durham's Rock Hard Water Putty. <laughs> Highly recommend it if you have kids of any shape or size and or holes in the wall. Um, it, it's kind of like putty, but you can use it to fill wood or plaster or anything and you can sand it or paint it. It's amazing. Yeah. My, uh, my grandfather swears by it when he showed, showed the, uh, package to me, it looks like something from the 1800s, but it works. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's miraculous. Yeah. I, I just, I think it's early, maybe early 1900s packeting. It's like a guy in a wrestling singlet, like flexing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it looks really funny. And yes, I I have used it, Stuart, for a coffee table and a bookshelf project, a woodworking project, and it worked great. So here's what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, there it is. <laughs> Stuart's uh, sharing his screen, which is fantastic for the podcast audience. It really works well. Um, yeah, I'd like to revise my pick of the week. I think a jump rope. <laughs> I'm not going to do a That's pick of the great. week. I think we should just move into the topic at hand. And Stuart, I think you have a clinical case. That's right. For once, I have one. So here's a clinical case from Cashlack Regional. So we've got Dr. Noyadal. He's a junior practicing physician with privileges at the Cashlack Regional Ambulatory Practice, or CRAP for short, who earned higher marks in residency but feels unsure about himself and wants to know what he can do to prevent what he sees as common pitfalls, those being misdiagnosis, premature closure, and interpersonal communication lapses. So, Gurpreet, at the end of our last discussion, you briefly touched on your training regimen that you focused on. Um, so, you spoke about four distinct concepts, those being feedback, simulation, micro-learning or quizzing, and learning from consultants. So, Dr. No- Noyadal seems to be in need of some training. Could you give us a brief overview of those concepts that underpin your training regimen? Uh, yeah, and I, I certainly want to help. I don't want to be a know-it-all, but I'd certainly want to help uh, Dr. <laughs> know-it-all in their uh, pursuits. Um, yeah, I think, you know, what I think about, of course, is like when we're in practice, we're busy all day long. Um, and the question is, we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to our patients to get better and better. And there's just two paths. You can either say, I'm going to go to work and try to learn what I can from the job. Or you're going to say, well, can I create a program that takes a little le- little extra effort, um, but allows me to get better, puts me on sort of a different co- uh, uh, performance curve. 
And some of those things that you mentioned, like feedback, which we talked about the last time, tracking your patients is something you can do to learn from your cases. Um, you can set up quizzes for yourself. You can um, uh, do simulation. But I wanted to step back from those four things and think about like, what do any of them do? And as I've been thinking more and more about this and really helping my trainees get better, help my colleagues get better and myself, I recognize that, you know, what we're doing at work is we're getting exposed to a ton of cases. Like we're, we're trying to expose ourselves to cases and we're trying to learn. Um, and that winds up being the very best way of learning and developing expertise. And it's worth noting because there's a lot of other theories would tell you that there's something else to do. Like some people might say, well, you know, stop falling prey to heuristics and biases. And someone else might say, no, you just should keep up with the literature. And, um, you know, someone else might have a, a different theory about how you become great. But it's shown over and over again in fields that if you want to get better at a domain, you have to encounter real problems for the domain. So I started thinking about, well, what can I do to put more cases in front of myself? Like, you know, and this is an odd question, right? Because docs are really busy. Like we work eight to 10 hour days. Um, so you, ask, you have to ask yourself, am I gonna really uh, draw inspiration from these other fields like deliberate practice and other ones where the world is exactly the opposite? Uh, like in chess or music or sports, they train all day long and they have like an hour of performance once a week, right? Yeah. And our world is the exact opposite. Um, we are performing all day long and you're saying, where can I, where and what can I do? And maybe a half hour or hour I could eke out every other day or a few times a week. So that's the dilemma that we face um, in trying to optimize our performance and judgments and thinking as physicians. So can, can you use your practice? So we, and we spoke about this last, uh, last time. Can you use your practice specifically as a form of, of training? You can. So the thing that we touched on last time and I think is worth uh, emphasizing is that the core series of cases that you have are the ones that come before you. Mm -hmm. And so the big differentiator is the clinician who goes to work, does their very best, and you know reads if they have to to figure out things, but otherwise just hopes that over a period of years and years by seeing a lot of stuff, by reading as needed, by running into colleagues, um, I'm gonna get better. And, and the answer to that is that you will, um, but you're probably not achieving your maximal potential. And so if you just stuck to your raw cases, just the, you know, the anywhere from 10 to 30 cases you might see in a given day, um, there's a subset of clinicians who put in extra effort around those cases. So they're, they're just as busy as everyone else, but they will track what happened to that patient. They will um, find a way to read on the margin of their knowledge, even if the case is sort of quote unquote routine. Like, you know, um, someone may have oh, another case of diverticulitis. And for most of us, that's another case of diverticulitis. But someone else says, let me just go to up to date and see what's new there. And they'll realize like, oh, now people are using NSAIDs for mild diverticulitis. I didn't know that. But if I had just registered it as a quick case, I would never would have done it. Or they're sort of finding ways to learn from colleagues. Um, and I, over the years, I found that's one of the hardest, but one of the most beneficial things to do is actually extract learning from your colleagues. So um, I wanted to briefly touch on about the, just about uh, uh, following up on your patients, keeping a patient log, because I thought this was interesting last time that we talked. We talked about keeping a patient log, and I, I queried the residents that I work with. We've got about 90 residents. I think at this one morning report or uh, conference that I was at, maybe about 50 to 60 of them were present. And I asked them pointedly how many of them kept a patient log. And interestingly, only three of them said that they did. Does that surprise you? No, I, I'm not surprised at all because, uh, and it should, it's a precursor for everything, like everything that we're going to discuss 
uh, today is more effortful. So we're we're talking about an odd thing. We're talking about asking like really busy, whether it's trainees or physicians, um, to put in some extra effort right. uh, for the goal of learning. And then I will tell you, it's extremely effortful to track your patients. There's everything from recording the name, the number, the um, question that you had, knowing when you need to follow up, keeping it in a HIPAA secure environment, mm-hmm. carving out the time in the future um, to uh, track what happened to that patient, sometimes then finding information that creates more work for you. It, it's quite effortful. My, my only point is it's very rewarding, but I'm not surprised that um, uh, you know any sampling of doctors wouldn't do it. Yeah. So and, practically speaking, what does that look like for you? Is this an Excel exactly. spreadsheet? Is this uh, like how, how are you actually keeping track of what to keep track of even? Because I imagine with the volume of patients you see, you're amassing just a huge patient log. Yeah. And the thing that that's, I've gone through many iterations and the subset of people I know who do this have all said the same, that you're trying to figure out a, a method to do it. And I've gone from everything from post-it notes to black books to Excel spreadsheets. Um, increasingly now I found it on my iPhone, et cetera. But I think to attend the HIPAA convenience and actually to catch me where I'm at, I think you have to have the tagging system in your EMR. Yeah. Um, and there are different, you know, all, all our EMRs are different, but some allow you to create shadow lists. Some allow you to send emails to yourself to remind within the program to remind you to check the chart in, in mm. three months when the serology comes back or in three weeks when that um, mycobacterial culture should be paused or neg. Um, and then, <laughs> right. And we're, cause otherwise you never know, you never know if that was or wasn't. Um, and I think that is going to wind up being the functionality that, you know, EMRs weren't really designed with docs in mind, but if there's one thing they could help us in learning, it'd be answer the simple question, what happened to my patient? Right. One of the common questions that I get is, uh, how many how many of these patients should you follow? All of them? Some of them? Half of them? No, unfortunately, the, the answer should be 100%. The reality I learned super quickly when I was working for a nocturnist for 10 years, that's when I got this habit was uh, that you can only follow a fraction of them. I, I right. should differentiate. We're not talking about patients you're responsible for. That's something very different. So if it's your clinic or it's your patient, if you own the patient, then we're talking about uh, an ethical responsibility. But we're talking about learning when a patient may have left your care. You discharge them from the inpatient service. You discharge mm-hmm. them. You gave phone advice and told them to follow up with their primary care doctor, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. It's overwhelming if you aim for 100%. I honestly would say that even my rate is, and I love this habit and I don't do it perfectly every day, is probably on the order of 5%. It's only a sampling that I'm doing because uh, it gets overwhelming. And I actually learned the, the best part of what I learned is that I thought that you should do it for just the rare or tricky cases. Like I had a case with a um, person who wanted to be a subarachnoid hemorrhage and I'm very interested to see what's happening for him. Um, and I had a case that that I think is sepsis, but I wasn't sure. And they spiked a fever right as I was signing them out. So I'm definitely going to track that one. Um, but then I just packed someone to abscess. I did an IND of an abscess and I drained it and it was completely routine. And I said, just follow up in clinic. They'll do the packing. This thing is going to be great. Uh, things are going to go swimmingly, but I never would have tracked them except I just put them on my random list. And I mm-hmm. found out two days later, the abscess, which I thought I had done a terrific job draining was twice the size and was extending but I, oh I wouldn't have done that. That was just on my random tracking list. I said I should just sample the quote-unquote routine easy cases. And what yeah, I learned right. was it wasn't routine and it wasn't easy. And I'm going to do something different the next time I have to drain an abscess like that. What's what's the longest that you've tracked a patient? Oh, yeah. The, I, the longest, I would say, is when I set out intervals like, was the mass cancerous or not? So check out for three months or... Um, 
uh, we've done something like treating a chronic infection. I want to see if that osteo is eradicated. But I will tell you that after three to six months, it's hard to really um, track the patient because there's so many other ones that are entering your system. Right, right. So the, it, it is a really rewarding habit, but it's a, a very uh, taxing one. My colleague, Sarisha Narayana, she created a curriculum at our, in our residency for the interns to do it after they've discharged patients months after being in the hospital. And uh, we published this in the Journal of General Med or Graduate Medical Education. And uh, they found there were lessons that you would never imagine when you do check people months later, like survived or did not. Um, uh, was solved by the rheumatologist, not the infectious disease doctor we sent them to, right. et cetera. But I think the practicality of it is, and one more thing is that when you track really long out, your brain forgets what was the question I had. <laughs> so you should, right? Yeah. If, if you say, I just wanted to see if that, um, you know, I just want to see if that blood culture was positive or not, that answer happens in uh, 72 hours. Like I discharged someone from the ER who had a, a kidney stone, but had a white count of 18,000 and had pyuria but clinically did not look like it was infected. And a lot mm -hmm. of my colleagues said, I always give antibiotics. Some people said I didn't. And I said, no, I, my flavor on this one is I don't think this is an infection, so I'm not gonna give them antibiotics. But in the back of my mind, I was like, I'm not 100% sure on this. So I gave him full assurance. I'm like, sure, you're gonna be just fine. Don't you worry. Um, <laughs> and then I wrote his name and number down and I've been tracking right. the cultures. And in 72 hours, it resolved the question in my mind about you know, can you have a high leukocytosis and pyuria without an infected stone, which the answer is yes. And the literature search was hard to verify that. So short is, short is better because the question is clear in your mind and the cue hasn't built up much. Something that you mentioned last time, and I think this is this kind of goes along with the track uh, tracking your patients thing is is like your brain. You don't know a lot of the times you're when you're wrong. I think you might have been trying to answer the wrong question, and you said like your brain can't solve the problem if it's trying to answer the wrong question. And one of my colleagues at Cashlack mentioned there was a man, there was a this male patient on their service had this horrible abdominal pain and and ascites, and they were they were doing all this stuff to work it up. And they never considered that it wasn't actually ascites, it was urine, and the patient had a perforated bladder from bladder. like, mm. you know, from many years ago, the person had had some, some procedure to the bladder that had weakened it. And so, yeah, you gotta, you know, if, if you had gone off service and you had been treating that patient and not looked back, you might, you might not have known that you had missed that this was not ascites, it was urine that was causing all these yeah. symptoms. Precisely. Yeah. You, you, go, you go from saying, oh, this is my 100th cirrhotic ascites patient I've seen to, to this is my N of 1. This is my first urinary ascites. And you sort of open up that file in your mind. You get a piece of humble pie and you open up that new file in your mind. You're like note yeah. to self on occasion. And then you do have to go back. You have to say like, well, what are the reasons people can get urinary ascites? And you, you start to say, oh, well, you know, previous radiation or trauma or, or other surgeries may have accounted for it. And so then the next time another patient who looks like their liver um, and has ascites there, you should still think it's likely going to be ascites, but you might take note like, oh, I realized they had a bladder surgery also uh, three weeks previously. And my follow-up question to that is, so me speaking with her, I didn't see this case directly, but now, you know, that hearing that case, now that's sort of on my differential. Uh, this is sort of, we talked about illness scripts last time. Um and, and problem re representations for an illness script. This is sort of my, for ascites now, this is on the margins. Like I'm kind of broadening it. Is that what you meant by learning from your colleagues? Well, yeah. So the learning from the colleagues is a, another dimension that I found really interesting. So one is sort of giving feedback. You know, it's, it is tricky to, to call up your colleague and say, Hey, by the way, 
um, you know, I have no reason to call you. I'm just calling you to tell you you're wrong. <laughs> so that's hard. You know, it is hard, even if it's meant with the best intentions, because there's a lot of times when I made mistakes and I'm certain people are not calling me and and I've seen mistakes other people have made. And I'm like, boy, I know they love to learn from this thing, but I want to find a graceful way um, to to tell them just for their learning. Like there's no gotcha in it. And I, I started to recognize that um, there's it's sort of there are fields where they study how when is it OK to give people a little bit of negative feedback or constructive feedback. And one of the best insights comes from an old study in Harvard Business Review when they talk about high functioning teams. And they said high functioning teams don't hesitate to give each other negative feedback, um, right. but they have an offsetting ratio of about five positive comments. So. Uh, on these teams where they debate and and uh, will talk about things and say, listen, you should have done this differently or things could have gone another way. It's only in the context of having had roughly five offsetting positive comments. And they may be affirmations, they may be jokes, they may be favors, but whatever it is, you have a very positive mental bank account with that person. So that if you do want to call them back and say, hey, you know, your patient's here in the ED and I just wanted to let you know that we were all calling that appendicitis. It turns out it was all a psoas abscess. Um, they're receptive to it because they know you and you guys have had generally positive interactions. And so I've been thinking about this as uh, um, trying to build relationships with people who I hope would give me negative feedback or I could give them constructive feedback on is that you say like, listen, let me just uh, talk to this person about a case and learn from them and give them some appreciation for what their resident did um, or their consult that they came in on a Saturday afternoon and helped us with. So then I'm building up that positive bank account so I can um, give them feedback or expect them to give me feedback because they're essentially friends instead of transactional colleagues. Mm -hmm. I like it. Did you make up that bank account thing just on the fly there? That's good. <laughs> uh, I'm trying, you know, I think the, That's I a think common the, thing. Yeah, I think the emotional bank account may be from Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Okay. There's a, there's a relationship book that talks about the about banking. Oh, man, I can't, can't remember what the book is called, but I, I think it, it actually predates the seven habits of highly effective. Yeah. Because, I mean, bank usually banking is a source of uh, discourse in relationships. <laughs> What's happening with the banking account? <laughs> Do not run the but risk. That, by, of... by the way, I should say that speaking of relationships, that five to one ratio turns out to be true in marriages as well. John Gottman is this marriage expert, and he talks about that. He says, all just like all teams have negative comments, he says all couples fight. He's like, it's just the number of offsetting um, positive comments that determine sort of a high functioning couple. But you don't run the risk of diluting the feedback then? I guess that'd be uh, my concern. It's almost like the compliment sandwich couples? where it's so hackneyed. No, that, the thing is, it's not the compliment sandwich or the feedback sandwich. So it's not like you're that Machiavellian. You're like, I'm going to plant five positives. <laughs> right. so that I can drop that negative on someone. It, it's just much more like, you, I mean, it's almost like be nice to people and cultivate these relationships. There's times when you need to do stuff that's a little less pleasant, but you, two, the two of you grow if there's a lot of, and now I'm talking, I'm again, I'm not talking about relationships. My life, my wife would laugh if I was brought on the show. <laughs> but the two of you as a, as a dyad of physicians who work together in a hospital, you, both of you grow when you're giving each other. An example, uh, um, this is really, really uh, just another telling thing. We, I had a patient who uh, the EKG machine read AFib. And I was like, boy, this looks like uh, normal sinus rhythm with PAC is really trivial, right? But I'm like, I'm an internist. I want to make sure I don't miss AFib. And, then, and it's kind of tricky. And the patient had left. So I tagged the chart. I found out that our cardiologist did read it as AFib. And I said, oh, man, I, I, I'm pretty sure that this is um, normal sinus rhythm with APCs or I'm sorry, PACs. But because I know the cardiologist really well, I sent him a secure email and I said, hey, uh, Blank, do you mind checking this? 
And he emailed me back and he's like, you know what? You're right. I overcalled it. This is just normal sinus rhythm with PACs. The only reason I could ever like challenge a cardiologist on their EKG read is because I have a very positive relationship with this person. And, you know, the, uh, this person may count this as a negative, sort of I corrected him, even though it was very cordial. But the point was, if I didn't know him, the EKG would have never happened and I would have never gotten the learning and neither would have he. It's actually, I mean, for me, not that anyone cares what I think so much, but it's for me, one of the benefits of being a cash slack for as long as I have is having developed relationships where I can approach people without ego and ask, yes. what did I do wrong? Or would you right. approach this again? Or could you look at this a different way? It's, it did not be scared of actually approaching people and to do it in the service of the patient learning. It's it's probably the best change that has happened in my tenure of my time there. So yeah. rather than being afraid, realizing we all have the exact same goal and just having a conversation has facilitated care so much more than being scared to ask. I would tell you that I think people start to get used to like you're the guy who asks learning questions, right? Yeah. So a lot of our work is transactional. They're like, you know, start steroids, keep this person NPO, we'll cath him tomorrow, and it's very transactional. And if your interest is not the what, because in medicine, the what starts to become easier, familiar, but you really want to understand the why. Like, you know, we, we took care of Mr. Smith last week at Cashlack, and he got heparin for his troponin elevation, but then Mrs. Jones came in and she didn't. I understand I will start it on one and not the other, but I want to know the why is only if you know them. And I, I teach the the trainees is sometimes it is hard to ask the why because another person may think that you're threatening or questioning them when it's really just inquisitive. So I say, you just got to blame it on someone else. Like the, yeah. <laughs> it's a student, the student or resident, you say like, oh, I'm happy to start the heparin, but you know, I have to explain it to my attending or my team. Would you mind mm -hmm. explaining to me why we're doing that? And then I pull that all the time. I'll say, That's great. listen, we're totally, we're totally happy to send those serologies and we'll start the cyclophosphamide. But, you know, just so I can be clear when I explain it to my team, do you mind uh, telling me uh, <laughs> why? And I'm doing air quotes for my team, but they can't see that. <laughs> it, it seems to me that this would be the natural outgrowth from effective peer review. But oftentimes I find that peer review is more pencil whipped and just kind of on the back burner. Is, is there is this kind of like just effective peer review? Uh, okay. I don't know what pencil whipped is. So I don't, I want, <laughs> is that something good or bad? <laughs> but no, I, it's definitely different from peer review. This is, I mean, it's so casual and about one small element of the case rather than a global assessment of how someone did, mm -hmm. um, that I think that, you know, peer review is in a separate category, but to the extent that we're comfortable talking about each other, I think the dividends are so great because at some point you go beyond the evidence and you're just trying to learn, am I doing this because it's your style? That's the way we do it here at Cashlack. Mm -hmm. Uh, or are we both uh, not aware of some literature where we should be doing this better? Can I ask, I want to throw this out, and I don't want to take too much more time on this because I don't want to, Stuart's head to explode. But do, I just want to throw this out to the group. Do you guys run the list with the people that you pass off your patients to? Because that's something I do commonly. The next attending that I, when I go off of service, I will call two, three days and just be like, can we just run the list and tell me how these people did and what, what kind of happened? Is that part of your routine practice too? I... When I come back from, so as a hospitalist, I'll, I'll have patients, I'll come back after my time off and I'll ask about some of the patients. And often I have started creating lists. So a lot of the times I'll have checked on cases that I was interested in the outcomes. Uh, but I, I don't know that I'm as good about it as I probably should be as systematic as what, what, how many days later are you doing this, Paul? Well, it's probably, since I'm not a hospitalist, I'm going to be there anyway. It's probably a little bit easier for me, too. So, like, I'll be there two or three days later, and I'll just call um, the next attending and just and just sort of check in and literally go through the list that I probably still have in my white coat pocket and just, <laughs> was this person subject? Did they go home? Is this person walking now? That kind of stuff. Uh, um, just because I, I like self-flagellation. There's something satisfying about looking at that scan. 
so I don't <laughs> mind hearing about my own mistakes um, so I can do a little bit better. So yeah, I, I do that fairly routinely. Mm. I went yeah. account, I heard that uh, um, one of my colleagues that worked very closely with Andrew Olson, who's a, a med peds attending at University of Minnesota, he talked about a colleague who pre-warns when he gives a service over, he's like, uh, oh, sorry, when he takes over a service, he says, I'm going to be calling you in three days to tell you how these patients have done. And I heard Andrew present that at a conference. And I thought that That's was great. amazing because that outgoing person puts it on their to-do list and he pre-warns so that it's given it's a given that the call that's coming in three days has no judgment around it right there's going to be some successes and there's going to be some mistakes but it's so clear like i'm calling you for learning and so that we strengthen our relationship rather than out of the blue like hey text want to let you know that culture was positive should have started antibiotics <laughs> right <laughs> it's a much higher level uh communication that's fantastic yeah i in, in the emr that i use it's not really the patients that I'm more concerned about because I, I can follow them. I can look at them and, and see what the outcomes were, at, at least by um, just kind of perusing through the chart. What I actually call back about is more about the learners to see if they followed up with the things that we had counseled them on or where they're going as learners. So I'm looking more at the learner as a patient in this case as, a, as an attending more than the patients as patients. I, it's probably a failing of mine, but it's, you know, it, it's something I like to do. I think we should move on to the next next topic, which we're talking about quizzes and micro simulation. And That's Stuart, right. I think you had a little more of the case here. Yeah. So Dr. Uh, Dr. Know-it-all has taken your feedback to heart. He's still having some difficulty finding enough cases to further his training. He started using the Human Diagnosis Project at uh, humandx.org, but wants to know why simulation is important. So while it seems like a a no-brainer. And I know you, you mentioned this um, previously, I think, in the last time we that we talked, that pilots use flight sim- simulators. Um, most pilot schools, or at least many th- that I looked into, they actually don't use flight simulators. They actually do side-by-side. Uh, so, for example, in, in my first 10 hours of pilot training, for, um, I actually sat side-by-side in a Cessna, I think it was like a 172 in the early 2000s. Similarly, in the medical field, replacing actual patient encounters with simulated computer-based training might seem suboptimal. So why is simulation in the medical field important? Yeah, I think uh, I use simulation almost in the just the low-tech version of it, which is putting your brain through the paces. So there are super high-tech um, uh, simulators for cases if you want. But what I really, when we're getting back to sort of how do I train myself, we did this first uh, section, which I, I like, which is like from the patients I have, what can I do? I can do feedback. I can learn from my colleagues. I can do a little more reading on my own than I would have. That's one bucket of cases. But if you follow all the literature like on naturalistic decision-making and expertise and judgment, you find that people find a way to put themselves in front of more cases. So it doesn't have to be as authentic as like a real-world simulation exercise. It just has to be a chance to practice either solving a case or learning from a case. So that's why I use the word sometimes micro-simulation because the you in the past it might have been what can i read but really now multimedia there's so many chances to put cases in front of your brain and some of them are very short some of them are medium length and some of them are are full length and i would say that's almost the um that's the underpinning of a great training program because doctors are very busy and if you tried to learn as much as you can from your own cases the amount of reserve you have left to learn from extra cases in the universe is small um, but luckily, there's a menu of sort of small, medium, and large. There's like this Goldilocks uh, options. And that's what I think is it has a tremendous amount of potential. The full-on simulator would be something like, um, well, I mean, it could be a virtual reality. 
uh, sort of thing. But uh, I think you know, these, there are these long cases that come in the New England Journal of Medicine, for instance. They have the weekly clinical problem solving or monthly clinical problem solving case or weekly clinical pathologic conference. Or they have an online analogy, which is the um, interactive medical case, where you really go through a long case. There's tons of embedded reasoning you can solve as you go along. Um, but you honestly have to block out about 45 minutes to do those uh, properly. But they're available, and, and I am religious about doing the paper one that comes every week. But I think the real promise for how busy everyone is, and I certainly find more, I guess my favorites now, is all the small cases you can expose yourself to constantly. You just ask yourself, how can I get myself in front of a ton of cases? Yeah, I love it. I, I started, uh, I haven't done the the long case in the New England Journal as much as I would like to, but that was one that I never really, I hadn't gone through that because it's kind of like, you know, it is, I would read it and I'd be like, oh, I can't get this case. Um, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know what's going on here, but now like, you know, when I look at it as like, okay, this is a game I'm training. Uh, yeah. this is going to, this is going to make me better by there's going to be twists and turns in this. And, you know, if it's a game you can win every time, you're probably not learning. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that's been great. And then the, the we we are not sponsored by humandx.org, but I just think it's a useful tool. That's why you you brought that up last time. And that that is one that you can use. And, yeah, the cases could take anywhere from a minute to five minutes, but they're they're very quick. And they're written by other internists from just all over the country. That's correct. And I think those are two extremes of sort of the, the long case. And I, I want to follow up on what you said about that. When, when any of us do the New England Journal of Medicine CPC, like there is a moment of futility where you're like, there's no chance that I'm going to get this. <laughs> or, I, I, I'm so far afield. I can't wait to see what someone smart thinks about this case. But it underscores like if you're really trying to train your brain, it's what you said. If you can get it, you're not really learning. Like you, you mm. want it to be learning should be really effortful. One of the greatest notions I love about learning is like, um, uh, it says sort of when the demand uh, exceeds the supply of your neurons, that's when learning happens. Like it, 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 it outstrips what you know. And that's exactly what you want. And the thing about, you know, these long cases, whether it's in that journal or any other one, is that the final diagnosis is rarely the thing of import. You know, it might be an unusual genetic sim- syndrome or an atypical presentation of something. It's much more important how they ruled out, you know, that this was not lymphoma so that you upgrade your knowledge of lymphoma or that they recognize like, this is the way strongyloides presents, and that's why they didn't think it was a parasitic infection. So you you take away those things. It's it's a very much journey. Like if you contrast it to the short cases, like that you can do on the Human Diagnosis Project or on Medscape or Figure One or even even shorter, like things that you see on Twitter, right? I mean, Twitter people post de de identified short cases, sure. but the learning happens instantly. I mean, the learning is in thirty seconds. You're like, I put myself in front of a case of a giant coronary artery aneurysm. I, put myself in front of a case of a fever and a rash that winds up being rickettsial disease. It can happen in 30 seconds. Yeah, this is great. So I I would tell the audience, uh, it helped me to think of it as kind of like a game and that you are leveling up and I don't know that I need to, I need to do that. It's kind of like a hack for me, a life hack, Mm -hmm. if you will. Yeah. I, that's the mindset. You know, the, the phrase I love, it's sort of, maybe it's getting too sports or militaristic, but it's sort of the notion you source, um, sweat and practice so you don't bleed in the game. Um, you, it should be incredibly effortful and it should be really um, humbling and it should be at the margin of our knowledge. And then uh, there's this hope that it sticks in long-term memory. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But if you don't get yourself in front of those cases, there's, there's little hope of it even starting at that point. Stuart, we're, we're very lucky in this age where, where the, all those cases are around. 
Yeah. Stuart, where are we going to go next with this? What's the next? Yeah, so I, I think we've adequate, adequately addressed uh, the whole idea of simulation. I think the next question that we have is more along the lines of microlearning and quizzing. So Dr. Know-It-All has some questions specifically about that and how it varies from simulation. So how does this vary from simulation? Yeah, so it sort of gets at, um, you know, when if you're going through this effort, whether it's learning from my patients on the job or some extra time I find reading, and oftentimes it is a life hack, like you're doubling it with your commute or doubling it with your exercise or while you're sitting around. But if you, you figure out a life hack to get yourself in front of some more cases, um, then the real question is like, it's sitting in short-term memory, but the chance that I'm going to be able to recall it when I'm taking care of a patient or teaching it or something else is actually really slim. Um, and that's very depressing, but that's because our, our brain immediately, the minute you upload something great, um, and however great it is, it immediately starts on what's called the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, which is just this exponential decay where it starts to forget knowledge that was in short-term memory. And, you're, and it also is the same with long-term memory. And your question is, what do I have to do to take this pearl that I just learned or this insight I just got from this case and shift it into long-term memory so that I can retrieve it? Again, when I have to teach it or see a patient or draw on it for something else. And that's when you have to create some extra challenge from your brain. And I know that sounds effortful because we already talked about reading more cases, but there is actually one more step to consolidating it in long-term memory. So what what is that step? I mean, is there or is it when actually Do you like my cliffhanger? Actually, before we go before we go the to the episode of the cliffhanger. Yeah, before we go to that, you're just we're, we're talking about question banks here and CME questions after you read articles, things like that. Is that what we're talking about yeah, with the quizzing? To some degree, that's it. Any way any way you can find to to test your brain. So when we read something or hear something. What the brain thinks is that it's familiar. You're like, I just sat through a great grand rounds. I just had a great curbsiders uh, um, podcast on liver tox. I remember a lot of the pearls he said, you know, what are the seven signs of liver disease in the hand um, that, you know, the, you, the liver biopsy only samples one thirty thousandth of the liver. <laughs> you know, those things, those things are in my memory. There's a real good chance in the next week or two, I'm going to start forgetting that. So what are ways that I would re-upload that into my memory? One would be what I'm doing just now. I just said it <laughs> on curbsiders. The second is I could go to the show notes and expose myself to it the, and read the PDF and see if those things are there. But you can really create a lot of micro challenges for yourself. You could say, listen, I'm just going to draw out a linkage of concepts that I got from that podcast just for myself. So I write down what I know. And if I throw away that sheet, it'll still be helpful. You can say, hey, listen, tomorrow when I run into my colleagues, I'm going to tell them that I listened to this podcast and I'm going to tell them the four things I want to commit to memory about cirrhosis that I learned um, from that podcast. Um, you can say, I'm going to teach it. So there was a great, the, the show on the knee exam was terrific. But you say, you know, I remember uh, the doctor was talking about the four buckets that he puts knee pain into. Um, the only way I'm really going to know that is the next time I have a knee pain case, I'm going to use that to teach it to someone else, uh, to my resident clinic or my uh, nurse practitioner I work with. Otherwise, there's no chance I'll remember it. And then for all the stuff we do read now, yeah, there's tons of ways to quiz yourself. Um, you know, uh, CME questions that come afterwards, even if you don't want the CME, you just want the quiz that comes with it, or some cases have quizzing embedded in it. But the bottom line is there has to be some post-processing of the information. Just feeling familiar um, is uh, seductive, but it's deceptive. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I can say as uh, as someone who has made lots of show notes in the past several years, it definitely helps. And then going on rounds, going into the clinic and teaching it, 
uh, to colleagues or to to students and residents. It it helps consolidate all these things. Yeah, and that's a and big so reason you why we are, keep doing this. You're almost looking for excuses to draw on that thing that you learned the first time. Like maybe I'll debate a friend. Maybe I'll listen in on someone else's case where they're talking about it. Maybe the next knee pain that seems totally routine to me. It's another OA case. I'm still going to go back and qu- check those show notes real quick for one other thing so I can reconsolidate and then move on in clinic. Um, but you you want to have some other reason for the brain to re-engage with the material. Um, and again, I want to treat this just like the feedback. 95% of what we do, you won't be able to do this. It's just a small habit of trying to do it a little more often. That's all we're talking about here. So it's not the folly of, oh, now every case I'm supposed to go do something else after, negative. <laughs> the vast majority is still just get the learning you can out of the case, but start thinking about the ways you can re-engage with it one more time. Love it. I, I'm realizing now that we didn't ask you about your approach to reading the literature, which I know is a little bit different. So can you tell us how you approach the literature when you're reading it? Yeah, I'm happy to. I love the medical literature, um, but I do play favorites. The favorite I like is the cases um, that we were talking about. But Howard Slotnick years ago did research on how docs read. And he said there's patient-based reading, uh, which we talked about. And then there's general reading, which is just sort of when you're perusing um, to try to increase your knowledge, not knowing the day when you're going to call on it. Um, And when I was in training, what we were taught was that should just be this rigorous review of the primary literature that's coming out, that you were scanning it and pruning it and analyzing it and then uploading the latest literature. And that sounded great, but as soon as you got into practice, you recognize that a lot of research isn't practice changing. It's communication between researchers um, and doesn't distill down to the practice level until there's been multiple iterations and debates and such. And I came to recognize that given how limited time a clinician has, especially if you're spending part of your uh, reading time reading cases, was that the key isn't um, scrutinizing the primary literature. It's just being aware of the primary literature. So it's very different. It's not, I don't need to know all the articles. I just need to know about the articles. Mm. And one of the best ways to know about the articles is in the secondary literature. So that's where I uh, spend my general reading time. So I shouldn't have read all 150 pages of the new blood pressure guidelines. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, that's 500 pages. So clearly you didn't read them. <laughs> <laughs> selling yourself short, man. <laughs> right, when you say that, secondary literature, what tell, do you mind telling me exactly what you mean by that? Because I, I just yeah, want to make sure yeah. I'm understanding. For sure. I mean, it's oftentimes places where people who have better knowledge, it's like it's people who have better knowledge of a, the domain of the literature or of sort of analyzing articles have already gone through through it and made a summary and a take home. Um, and I'm not apologetic about not being completely masterful in knowing research methods or trial methods. They're very complicated. Like there's a reason the JAMA user's guide to the literature is 800 pages long. Yeah. <laughs> it's a field by itself. So I look forward to sort of um, first watch every morning uh, in my inbox that summarizes a couple of major journal articles or journal watch or ACP journal wise, or uh, just seeing the e-table of contents of the, the journals that come through. There's podcasts that summarize it. Twitter sends out the titles or punchlines from articles. And that may sound like I'm shortchanging myself, but I view it completely the opposite. I sort of have four or five inputs telling me like, hey, there's an article that says now clopidogrel is good for this. Hey, there's an article that now says, you know, you can use BNP uh, to diagnose this version of heart failure or um, that we're no longer that now we use HRCT to diagnose this form of interstitial lung disease. I don't need to know all the details. I just need to know that that knowledge exists so that 
when a patient or a teaching moment comes, I'll know where to find it. In fact, I'll even know to go looking for it. Um, but I don't deceive myself into thinking if I read something on this day uh, and digest the whole article that I'll know it, um, you know, 12 months later. I, I have hit upon the same tact as you because I, I, get, I get the same New England Journal and the ACP send out a lot of great stuff, the annals, ACP, and I, I just kind of scan through those things. So I, I've been sort of doing the same, same type of thing that you have, and it, it, it seems to work. You know, when, I, when something comes up, I know that that's been there so I can go back and look more in depth when it's relevant to a patient. I am quite frankly shocked, since this is someone who I know actually used to calculate his own numbers needed to treat when reviewing review articles. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I, think I ever did that. <laughs> the theme I hope you get is that the key is multiple small feedings for the brain uh, rather than an extended exposure. So if it's a case, I'd rather like read the case. Uh, let me give you the New England Journal of Medicine as an example back to cases. I'd rather see it in the e-table of contents, read the summary that comes in the, um, uh, I think they have Resident 360, uh, see the summary that's sent out on Twitter, um, and then read it myself or vice versa and have multiple, and do the CME questions, have multiple exposures to that one case. Um, the same goes for the journal articles. I'd rather know that someone did a trial on whether uh, injections work for lateral epicondylitis or not uh, in the BMJ and see it once in the Twitter feed, see it once in Journal Watch, see it once in the e-table of contents, and then just be totally aware that I will Google BMJ lateral epicondylitis steroid injection and learn it in depth when the moment comes. But don't take up any real estate uh, in long-term memory before then. Yeah. You'll, you'll just be drowning if you try to... If you yeah. try to read all these articles, so you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I I don't think that's taught. Uh, I don't think that's taught early enough. And I, I this is something that I talk to students and residents about, or that they ask me all the time, like, "What are you reading? What do you do to keep up with the literature?" And you know, so I think it's great to hear you give this this information to the audience. I think it's going to be really helpful for people. Yeah, I don't keep up with the literature. I just try to be aware of it. Yeah. Mm. All right. Stuart, what's uh, what's left in our training regimen here that we need to ask about? Well, it's something we already talked about, and it's about how Dr. Noidal can learn from his consultants and or colleagues. So I'm not sure if there's any more to add to that, actually. I just want to share one global thing about sort of putting yourself in front of cases because I do view it as the, it's the raw material. Like you become expert in this by having experience and reflecting on it. That's the bottom line. You become an expert in a domain by having experience, but also reflecting on it. And so in my own personal training program, I think of three buckets of cases. They're the ones I deal with, with me and my trainees, the people who are in front of me. There's this whole multimedia universe of cases that I'm just some, somewhat systematically and somewhat randomly sampling, like a handful of apps, a handful of blogs. Mm -hmm. There's some podcasts, like on the I Am Reasoning podcast. Uh, they sometimes go through cases, and I, I learned a ton on eosinophilic meningitis because of that, um, for example, recently. And then there's the sort of the cases that are of my colleagues, and they're in my world locally if I choose to go there. It's a little bit of effort. But in, in a teaching hospital or, or in any hospital, sometimes there might be a morning report or peer review or M&M or um, uh, a clinic conference, whatever you call it, where people are discussing cases. And it's, it's an hour of your day, right? You're making a commitment, but what you get out of it is there's another series of cases. So there's a third flow of cases that are coming into my uh, 
um, training routine. So my cases, the multimedia cases, and my colleagues' local cases is such a rich input. And then from that, I'm trying to figure out what are my hacks to um, put it into long-term memory so that I can call upon it later. That's the workflow of this training routine. Now, the long-term memory, you, you, we've talked about it a little bit. Is there anything else you wanted to teach us there about how to get it into the long-term memory other than what we've discussed already? Or are we ready to go on to take, take home points for the audience? Uh, no, I think that, uh, I think with long-term memory, the key thing is, you know, there's, there's actually very interesting math and theories behind it, but they all come to the same thing, which is um, memory decays over time. So as time passes, the memory fades but the strength of the imprint and then the number of times you can re-expose yourself is what strengthens the memory. So that's the battle. It's the, the battle of how strong the imprint is and then how many times you can do it uh, contrasted against the amount of uh, interval time when there's no exposure at all. So you might say for a concept like multiple myeloma, like the time I can see multiple myeloma and make it memorable for me. Like I remember the patient's story, I taught my team a little about it and I, fed, I did feedback to see how he did in three weeks. That was a consolidative effort. Um, and then because I'm in a busy clinical practice, I saw another case uh, three weeks later. So together, that's a short interval. Um, that's going to help my multiple myeloma knowledge go up. But if I did see a case recently of subarachnoid hemorrhage, and then the interval with which I see subarachnoid hemorrhage is once every uh, five months that I'm primarily responsible for it, that one has less chance of sticking in long-term memory. Although if it's really memorable, maybe it will. Yeah. So much to do. So to make the audience, actually to make me feel better about this, I'll, if I'm being honest, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how, how it's much- all, It's all group therapy, man. It's okay. all group therapy. How yeah. much time do I need uh, per week to devote to this to really uh, move forward on my path towards expertise or mastery? Yeah, okay. fair question. I think that uh, you want to be able to find uh, 20 minutes per day minimum. Uh, and it can overlap with something you do. So for, uh, for instance, if you have an exercise routine, can you do it with that? If you have a commute, uh, can you do it with that? If you're stuck waiting to pick up a kid somewhere, can you do it uh, with that? Um, or somewhere where it's downtime. Um, and you figure out your hacks. Like I actually, even in this electronic age, I carry a lot of these cases and stuff, like just printouts with me by paper. There's times when like you can't look at your device. It looks it's uh, not socially acceptable, et cetera. Um, and I will uh, pull out a piece of paper, which is much more acceptable, but I'm getting my reps in. I just work, I look at it like a gym. <laughs> just how many reps are you going to get in? So uh, devote 20 minutes extra a day and ask yourself this. Have I followed up on two of my patients? And have I put myself in front of two more cases than I would have? And they could be micro cases with micro learning. Um, and then on, on any of those, can I do something that will consolidate that memory uh, in the next couple of days? That's a very, I mean, that's an ambitious goal, but it's also an achievable one. Fantastic. Stuart and Paul, do you guys have any further questions before we let Gurpreet go? No, I got some work to do, so I should probably, <laughs> I need to go start <laughs> yeah. reading some cases like Toot Sweet, I think. <laughs> at least at least 20 minutes worth. <laughs> at least. Yeah, just 20 minutes. Okay. And maybe... Uh, I don't know. This this may not be. I mean, uh, I should say like some. If I sometimes try to describe my compulsion for this, I really do love it. I think that um, if you love medicine, then the reading these cases, meaning these micro cases, is just it's a joy. You're uh, someone else has done the work, and you're getting all the learning. Um, and I, I would say if I was even to describe myself, I sort of have a bit of FOMO. 
Like I have a, <laughs> I, I have a FOMO yeah. of cases. I'm like, there's so many great cases in the world, uh, or even in my local environment, and I'm not hearing about them. So I would, I'd encourage you to have FOMO about cases. Maybe there's a hashtag about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get our social media team on it too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want credit if that uh, starts going viral. Yeah. I think that's going to start trending. <laughs> That'll start trending along with the hashtag Where's Paul, which is uh, something that we started a while ago. <laughs> and yeah. It's gone nowhere. <laughs> it's gone nowhere. <laughs> You have case for more has more potential. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. This is this is fun. I I love the fact that we get to talk to you once in a while. This is this has been awesome. Oh, I got I, I love it too. I gotta tell you guys, like this is the teacher in me, and, and I bet each one of your list your guests is saying this whether they know it or not, is they're consolidating their knowledge. Like when you go on a podcast, there's the emotional valence of like this is social. So you and this is public. Mm-hmm. So uh, it leaves a strong imprint on their brain. Even if it's their usual teaching stick, I can promise you, like I, I'm clarifying things in my mind because I'm telling you guys this. So I love it. Capreet, we'll let you go. Thank you so oh, much for your time. This is yeah, a great fun. This Anytime, is great as I'm a super fan. I plug you guys anywhere I can. So um, <laughs> I love your guys. So my favorite thing, which I listened to at the very opening, is this sped up disclosures, you know, when you put <laughs> it. And my, my favorite one is where it says like, does not re- uh, reflect the affiliates of Cashlack. If there are any, there are none. <laughs> you have to listen very closely. There's, I don't know when you recorded it, but it's the sequencing of it is so hilarious. That's Stuart. <laughs> I know it's Stuart's voice. I can tell, but the, uh, the there are none. Yeah, I've meant to, to re-record that several times. No, no, that, that thing's golden. I might stop listening to get rid of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right, fellas, I'm going to sign so off. Then. All right, take care. Bye. Yeah, Stuart, that is my favorite part of that as well. <laughs> All right, fair enough. All right. You want to do the outro? This has been another episode of The Curbsiders. It sure has. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can get Yummy. Sh- <laughs> you can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and get on our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. Please give us your feedback. Send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Or you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night, Curbsiders. Good night. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And good night. Oh, hi, Paul. And a special thanks to all our producers and writers uh, for the show, as well as our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli is on Instagram. Hannah needs a nickname. Abrams is on Twitter. And Chris Chumanchu is on Facebook. Thank you and good night.